0: I have preached out of this text before here at faith assembly It's been a couple of years at least almost a year and a half. Actually. This was part of an Easter series Um, I did talking about peter judas the thief on the cross and jesus himself But we're going to be looking at it with fresh eyes this morning as we're going through the gospel of mark as we're continuing our journey through that one thing we have to understand when we look at this story, and, and I've had several questions about this over the past few weeks. Peter's denial versus Judas' betrayal. What, where's the real difference there? How come Peter gets restored and Judas hangs himself? You know, we're, we're, what's going on here? And so we're, we're looking at this. And the one thing we have to understand when looking at the story of Peter is that we are all very much like Peter. We are by nature sinful beings. In fact we're in Assemblies of God church and the fourth fundamental truth of the 16 fundamental truths of the Assemblies of God is that of the sinful nature the fall of man it reads actually in our in our creeds you might say we don't have a lot of creeds but in our in our doctrinal statement it says man was created good and upright for god said let us make man in our own image after our likeness however man by voluntary transgression fell and thereby incurred not only physical death but also spiritual death which is separation from god now in Reformed theology they have a word for this it's called uh, a phrase for this sorry it's called total depravity and we agree if you read the assembly of god position paper on reformed theology they say we agree with that statement it's something that all christians can get behind we are we are fallen creatures Now, the the idea of total depravity, that is humanity's radical corruption by sin, but even those within the reform camp, they they don't really like that phrasing so much. R.C. Sproul, he, he writes, It's not a fair way of referring to it because it insinuates that man on his own is completely and utterly as wicked as possible, and that's just not so. We know, many of you probably know, atheists, or unbelievers at least, who can still be loving fathers or sweet grandmothers not at the same time. Okay? But they they can be good or decent people, kind people. They're not good. Jesus says there's nobody good but God, but they can still show good qualities. However, their very being is still tainted by sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God, either in act, in attitude, or nature. That's how Wayne Grudem defines it in his book on systematic theology. It's hundreds of pages. If you ever want to look at that, it's in my office. I'm happy to show it to you. It's a very big book, and he writes at length about sin. Sin is failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action or an attitude, but in our own moral nature. We cannot do real good on our own. We can do good things. We can have good qualities, but we cannot be good By ourselves, Whether we want to admit it or not, the Apostle Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The emphasis Paul is making is on what we once were. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you've submitted yourself to him, he has breathed new life into you, and you no longer have to wear the shackles of sin, you're free from them. If you do sin, it's because you choose to do so. It's because you give in to that sinful nature. It's dangerous. And though we may be sanctified, though we may be justified, though we may have the closest walk imaginable with Jesus Christ, still somehow we can be so arrogant as to think that we can stand on our own apart from Him. That's what Peter does. That's Peter's mistake. Nobody walked closer to Jesus than Peter. And yet his pride leads to his own denial, his great sin. Will you stand with me this morning as we read the text verse beginning of verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, "You also were with the Nazarene Jesus." But he denied it, saying, "I neither know nor understand what you mean." And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated this morning. It's the word of God. I've titled this message, Though They Fall. That's Peter's own words. Though they all fall, still I will stand beside you. Though they all betray you, they all abandon you, Jesus, I'll die with you. That's what Peter had said. And the point of the text this morning, if you're taking notes, to trust in yourself is to deny Christ's lordship. That's the truth of it. To trust in yourself is to deny Christ's sovereign lordship. Now the story of Peter is really a warning for us against self-confidence. When we think we're good enough for Jesus, when we think we're on top, we have to tread carefully. This goes against our culture. This goes against the very things we are taught in this society from a very early age. We're told in the media, in our school system, in our society that if you try hard enough, if you believe in yourself enough, if you live your truth, well, you can make anything happen. You can manifest your own destiny, so to speak. If you do fail, if you come up short, if you can't seem to get it right, the problem, therefore, is not with the circumstances. It's not with the world. It's certainly not the problem with the people around you. It's your own lack of faith, or so we're told. This past week, the Green, uh, the, sorry, the Green Bay Packers QB, but we've got him. He's the Jets QB, Aaron Rodgers. He's talking about manifesting things, speaking things into existence. He's not a Christian. And yet there are Christians who believe we do this. Christians believe we are able to manifest these things by just having enough faith and speaking. This is the great lie of the Word of Faith movement and the prosperity gospel. I've seen it firsthand. Many of you have too. And the thing we don't talk about in that movement is we talk about their bad theology. We talk about why they're wrong biblically. But the one thing, the ugly thing we really don't want to address is the abuse that comes with it. And it's often found in this, that if you don't receive your healing, if you don't get your big payday that you were, pay, you were praying for and planting your seed money for, why? well, it's God's will that everyone should be healed so God's clearly not the problem, is what they say. So you just need to have more faith. You need to sow more seed money, work harder, show yourself true to God. And that is utter hogwash. We know that. It's boulder dash. And that's me using the nicest words I could find in the thesaurus. The whole thing falls apart with a simple reading of John 5, or as we've seen in this series in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is hunted down, Peter wants him, come heal the rest of the people in Capernaum, and Jesus says, no, let's go on to the next towns that I might preach, because that's why I came. There were people at Peter's house that night. It's not that Jesus didn't care about the hurting. It's not that Jesus didn't love the sick, but it was not God's will to bring healing to their bodies. Not many of them, or probably some of them, not ever, we're ever going to receive healing or even see Jesus again. That's a hard teaching. Why is it hard? Because we've been programmed to believe that we are people of worth, that we're people with rights, that even though you may look like me, a short Sasquatch some days, well, hey, you've at least got inner beauty, right? That's my own self-description. If you think I called you a short Sasquatch, you didn't hear me all right. But for crying out loud, you know, when I was in Bible college, we used to all gather in the student union to watch this show called American Idol. And I have no singing talent. I turned my microphone off during worship for your benefit. But I have seen people go through that TV show who have less talent than me and insist that they deserve a seat at the table. We have a society full of people who have no talent, nothing to contribute, and yet insist they're worthy enough to be famous. I mean, Check out YouTube or TikTok or all those apps. They're, they're everywhere, right? We're a society of selfish, self-centered people, and we reject the notion that we may be fallen, corrupt, evil, or sinful, and yet the truth is, if we understand Scripture, we are totally depraved. We are fallen. And to trust in ourselves... It's a trust within a fallen person. That's to deny Christ's lordship. We read again in verse 66, as Peter was in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And we're going to stop right there. The last we saw Peter, he was warming himself by a fire back in, I believe it was verse 54, and he's still warming himself in the courtyard. So what the next verse tells us. He's likely still surrounded by the temple guards, the same men who had escorted Jesus, arrested Jesus, and taken him here to Caiaphas' house, his residence. Peter has integrated himself among them when this girl finds him. he sat down beside them all. Now we know Peter's not entirely alone. John tells us that he and Peter were together, that he kind of got Peter to sneak into the house of Caiaphas. John gets that access because he knows the high priest. And from where Peter is, where he ends up settling himself down, he catches the eye of this servant girl. And it's probably the same servant girl John talks about when he describes this whole scene. John says like this Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We know that's John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple was who was known? Went, to, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. It's probably the same girl, but Peter still somehow finds himself sitting with these guards. And this servant girl is about to put him on the spot. Now the thing that's interesting about this young lady is that in Jewish society, she is absolutely insignificant. As a woman, her testimony, if if this were To put Peter on trial, her testimony would automatically mean nothing because she's a a female, she's a woman. In fact, the word that Mark uses to describe her, the Greek word, it means she's a young girl or at least a young person or a girl with no social status. She is literally no threat to Peter in this moment. But she's going to wreck his evening. Peter's only there, might I add, because he does truly love Jesus. He's there because he is loyal to his friend. He is faithful to his rabbi. And he truly does care what happens to Jesus. Peter's one of the most conflicted people in this text. He's one of the most conflicted people in all of Scripture. He is where he is out of love. But he'll go where he goes out of pride. And it'll wreck him. His love will not stand the test of, of fear. You might say, fear of what? Fear of an insignificant little girl and her accusations. Verse 67, And Peter, see, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now remember, this is the same Peter who not that long ago in, in our series, and in this chapter, in, in the chapter before, He said to Jesus, he said, though they all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. If he were to leave Jesus, he says in John 6, where will we go? He says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And yet Peter, now warming himself over the the coals of the fire, He hears the voice of a young woman accusing him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And these words send a lightning bolt of fear down Peter's back, the likes he'd never. You see, he didn't think he would get recognized, much less associated with Jesus. Now, this trial has likely been going on for an hour, maybe two. It's roughly around 2, 2.30 in the morning, 2 a.m. This is around the time Jesus had been quiet. Jesus had said nothing in his own defense, and the false witnesses kept stacking on top of one another, making claims that were clearly untrue. They twisted his words. They contorted his teachings, and yet Jesus remained silent. <clears throat> It's around this time that Caiaphas begins to demand the truth. He takes matters into his own hands. Are you the the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus, in all his earthly glory, in a moment of triumph, he says truthfully, knowing it will lead him to the cross, he looked at the high priest and he said, I am. Yet Peter, speaking dishonestly, While Jesus is sacrificially telling the truth, Peter will try to preserve his own life. Verse 68, But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. People sometimes read this whole sequence, and they say, well, Peter didn't have the Holy Spirit. He hadn't experienced Pentecost yet. That's why he denies Jesus. Pentecost has nothing to do with it. Any believer can be a Peter denying Jesus. You've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. Maybe we did not stand before the Sanhedrin, before the court. Maybe we didn't even have a hangman's noose or an executioner's axe staring us in the face. Maybe we weren't even facing bullying or criticism, but in those moments where we should have stood for Christ and yet we failed to do so, we have denied him. We kept our mouths shut while our Lord was blasphemed or mocked or laughed at. We've all experienced that. We've all been Peter at some point. You see, that's the thing about the Bible. We read it and we so badly want to be the hero. We want to be the good guy. We want to be the giant slayers, the ark builders, the jawbone-wielding strong men. When in reality, we're the fishermen, alone in the crowd, surrounded by enemies and afraid to speak up. You've heard me. All, you all heard me say this before. We're all the villains. We're the villains of Scripture, or at the very least, we're the damsel in distress, seeking that shining knight. While well, the shining knight, he's up in the courtroom, being blindfolded and punched in the face and mocked. It's not just us, though. It's not just you and me. It's throughout church history. There are many times Christians have gone before tribunals, judges, and they've bravely stood and insist Christ Jesus is Lord only to go to their deaths. But there are also those who don't get remembered, who aren't talked about in Fox's Book of Martyrs, who don't have uh, big statues in Rome and and other places. They're the ones who were thought to be mighty men of God, but when consequences arose, they melted. They became cowards They denied Christ with their mouth and they rationalized it in their heart, hoping to escape prison or escape death. I was reading one pastor's take on this and discussing it at one point. He brings up the fact that in the 1800s, all around Eastern Europe, it was mostly Christian churches everywhere. They filled parts of Western Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Romania, and so on. And if you were to look at that place today, it's predominantly atheist, no belief in Christ. No faith in God. This didn't change overnight. This didn't just shift when Lenin took power or anything like that. It's, it began with communism, yes, the USSR, socialism. But where it really happened was when the believers refused to stand. When the believers trusted in themselves when they would face imprisonment, isolation, or death, and they wouldn't confess Christ. In fact, history has a term for these believers. It calls them the lapsed believers. In Romania, the story goes, as the rise of the communist regime was going up in that area, the government came to Romania and gathered all the major pastors, all the big speakers, and they were having this wonderful service. Oh, you can still preach some things. You can still teach Things that Scripture says, you just can't speak out against the government. You can't really share the gospel because that's problematic, and it might offend somebody. You can't do this, you can't do that, but you can still be a pastor. You can still have church. You just have to have it our way. The story goes, a pastor's wife looked at her husband and said, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. And he replied, if I do so, you will lose your husband. And his wife's response was, I don't want to have a coward as a husband. So her husband stood up and got the floor and began to proclaim the gospel, and the whole thing was aired over the entire nation of Romania. And that night, for the last time, for a long time, the gospel was proclaimed in the nation. And for 14 years, that man spent time in prison, in the Russian gulags for his testimony of Christ. Peter was always so bold when the odds were in his favor, but now this little girl has him running to the gateway. He's actually making his way to the street. He's running away. And yet, in the distance, he hears the rooster crow for the first time. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. This girl does not let up. And if you've raised young ladies in your home, you know they can be very persistent. This girl's no different. She sees Peter and she wants to honor her boss. Her boss is the high priest. So she continues to harass him. She has this man on the ropes. She has him on the run. She's winning earlier that night Peter was so bold he swung his sword at a, at a, another servant of the high priest, his, the Malchus a servant's head chopped off his ear. He was bold then and now he, he cowers from this little girl. Why? What's happened? What's shifted in Peter that's changed him? Well, Like I said, this is around 2 or 3 in the morning this is taking place. But earlier in the night there were much happier times, better times. The disciples enjoyed a meal together with Jesus. And Jesus, during that meal at one point, He turns to Peter and Luke tells us the story. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Just as Satan had asked God for the testing of the faith of job jesus lets him go after peter to prove the fact once and for all that saving faith can never be broken no matter what happens this will be the trial for peter it will not be easy so jesus says take heart peter i've prayed for you i want to tell you something this morning church faith cannot fail where the lord himself intercedes on our behalf the book of hebrews tells us he's interceding on our behalf even at this moment And Peter, despite the fact that he will fail himself, his faith will not fail and he will persevere. He'll deny Jesus, he'll deny knowing him, and he'll be on the run, but in his heart he is still faithful. We read in verse 70, but again he denied it and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. He denies it again. This is the second time he denies it. The Greek word is Ernisato, and it means he literally is disowning Jesus. It's the same word that was used back in verse sixty eight. Luke actually continues, he sheds a little more light. He says, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you would know me. Well now it's two times. He's denied him twice. He's disowned him twice. And this group of people around this girl, they begin to hear what's happening and transpiring, and now they're in on it too. And they're, they're all saying to Peter, Certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Matthew tells us after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. That's how they knew where he was from. And we read that sometimes. We go, How could you tell? They're all Jewish. They're all from the Middle East. They all should talk the same, right? No, not necessarily. Do people in North Dakota talk the same as people who are from Texas? No. You ever hear someone from Boston compare their accent to someone from Chicago? In Boston, you park your car. In Chicago, you eat hot dogs. It's a difference. It's, we're all American, but it's regional, We also miss something here. There's a very subtle dig at Peter that's being made here. We miss it. On top of the threat that comes with being a follower of Jesus, there is a slight poke at him that we often miss that's unheard or or unseen. You understand the people of Jerusalem do not think too highly of their northern neighbors from Galilee. Especially not from Nazareth, right? What good could come from Nazareth? We know that part, right? People from Capernaum, from this area. People in Jerusalem consider them unsophisticated, uneducated. Today we might use the term hillbilly or redneck. They're country bumpkins. The idea even continues further on into the apostles' ministry in Acts chapter 4. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? Because they're country bumpkins. But what changed? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. The greatest teacher the world has ever seen. These are not common bumpkins. These are not common Galileans. They're not the regular hillbilly who would visit Jerusalem. These men have been with the Lord. Ironically, it's the same accusation These bystanders now level at Peter the night he betrays Jesus. He was a Galilean. He'd been with Jesus. Verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That's the third denial. It all takes place within a period of about two hours. Peter so quickly decides to save his own skin. In fact, he's going to invoke what's a curse upon himself, an anathema. In essence, what Peter is saying in this moment is, I swear to you in the name of God that I will be eternally condemned if I am lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. Paul uses the very same word, It's a very rough word, by the way. It's as close to a swear word in the English language the Bible really gets in the Greek. Paul says... In Galatians 1.8, if, we, if even if we, if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He says, let them be an anathema. Let them be condemned to an eternal hell. It's very strong language. It's very crude in Jewish culture. You do not swear like this. You don't do it. Not unless you really mean it. Not unless you want it to happen. Of course, we know Peter is falling apart in this moment. He's driven there by, like I said, his intense love for Jesus, his loyalty for the Lord. He followed with John at a distance because he's already said at least a couple of times no matter what, he's going to stick by Jesus, even though everybody else will fall away. Peter will be there. He first lied to the servant girl I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean second time he tries to brush it off, he heads to the street, but then the bystanders follow him, and he says, I don't know the man. It's almost a bizarre irony we see taking place here. Inside that makeshift courtroom, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. But outside in the courtyard, Peter actually commits it. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Luke tells us something extra, a little extra detail, that in that moment Peter was able to see inside the courtroom. He was able to make eye contact with Jesus. Luke writes like this, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about and immediately while he was still speaking the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he said to him before the rooster crows you'll deny me three times and he went out and wept bitterly truthfully I'd weep too Mark is writing this to a church that is under intense persecution were it possible for Peter to deny Christ one of the leaders among the apostles then We too must constantly and consistently be on our guard. Were it possible for him to do it, I can do it. You can do it. Not trusting in ourselves, not leaning on our own understanding or on our own strength, but on Christ, the very one we do not want to deny, the very one we seek to be loyal to. To deny Jesus is to become undone as Peter, to falter, to fail him, And yet, even then, in this moment, Jesus told Peter, When you've done it, go strengthen your brothers. Go return to them. We don't know exactly where Peter goes after this, but we know eventually he ends up back with the other 11, the other 10. Sorry, he's one of the 11. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he doesn't even mention Peter, but one more time, and this is what it is. It's an angel talking to Mary. He says, go tell the, his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's with the disciples, but he no longer sees himself as one because he's denied Jesus. He's separating himself from them. Peter's fallen, but he's not lost. He still loves Jesus. He loves Jesus fiercely. In fact, we know that whenever Mary comes to the disciples and tells them it's John and Peter who run to the empty tomb, and eventually Peter will be restored. Peter sits on the shore with Jesus in John 21. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Listen to this. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus question Peter's love? Three times. There's no coincidence there. We all at some point trust in ourselves and we deny Christ with our actions, with our words, with our inaction or our silence. And all all of us at some point must be restored to Christ as well. Now many of us have this idea that God's called us and and we're going to suffer for him at some point. and, And yet we have this mentality of what our breaking point might be. And we may find out what that is sooner rather than later in our society. We don't know. It may be that our breaking point is simply peer pressure. It could very well be a prison sentence. We don't know yet. The difference, I think, between Peter and Judas is simply this, that when Peter failed, in his heart he repented. And he went back to the disciples to face the consequences of his actions. The next time we see him, he's with the eleven, like I said, and when Judas fails, it's not out of repentance, but remorse. And there is a difference. We've talked about the difference. And what's Judas do? do? He, he doesn't go to the disciples. He goes to the chief priests. Out of guilt. Not out of repentance. Tries to give the money back. And what's he met with? Well, what's that to us? Sort it out for yourself. Peter hears his friends say, Peter, hey, whoa. Whoa. We've all failed. We all ran in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas hears, that's your problem. One will be restored. One will end his own life. Church, when someone falls, when someone fails, someone denies Jesus, someone backslides or falters, whatever phrase or wording you want to use to describe it, when they come to the church, it's up to us to restore them. When we've all made mistakes and have to repent, it's up to the church to show grace and love and, and restore them back to a right relationship with Christ. James tells us, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if you're here today and you've not been living boldly for Christ, if you've denied him with your silence or in some other way, maybe you know that today you can still be restored that you're loved that you're among believers who have also failed many many times ourselves maybe you're here and you're saying i've actually been doing pretty good pastor good encourage someone else maybe you're here and maybe you're watching online and you're saying you know what i've never really got it and followed jesus i've never really understood that he died for your sins the same as he died for any of ours And you can be made right in him. We're going to close and worship in just a moment. But if you're finding yourself in this predicament, if you feel that you have been that guy, you've been that woman who should have stood for Christ and you didn't, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back know that you can be restored today. Take some time, pray. If you don't want to pray by yourself, grab someone else and ask them to pray with you. We'd be happy to. That's the beauty of being in a church family, by the way, that we are here for one another, to love one another, encourage one another, build one another up towards love and good deeds. But I would challenge you to trust him today, place your faith in him today. Let him lead and guide and then follow after him. Let's stand as we close and worship together today. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases.